0: Welcome to Radio Survivor. My name is Eric Klein. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the program.
1: My name is Paul Reismanel. I'm another host and producer. This is a show that's about radio. It's radio that matters. Radio by people for communities, real people for real communities. And and we'll actually talk a little bit about that whole notion of community later on in the show, community and audience, actually. Yeah. Um, But we talk about podcasting, college radio, community radio. A uh, little bit of public radio, non-commercial radio. We'll even talk about the very best of commercial radio um, if it meets, it meets our, our exacting standards.
0: If it's any good at all. If, if we want to listen to it on occasion, then, it's, then that's what we'll talk about. Yeah, and, and in today's episode, uh, Paul and I are going to bat a few ideas back and forth about about radio, about podcasting. and um, But we're going to start with uh, a bit of listener feedback.
1: Uh, we got a very uh, fairly detailed uh, comment over email from a listener. His name is Stephen Jones. And um, I definitely think it's worth uh, worth reviewing here on the show because I think he makes uh, some really important historical points. So he was writing very specifically about our interview with Dr. Christopher Terry about the uh, Telecommunications Act of 1996. And I'll uh, – quote him a little bit in part from his email Uh, he says it's fairly typical in public policy discussions to say reagan did it but in radio regulation as with so many other things the move to the right started under jimmy carter and with carter appointees carter will note is was a democrat whenever an academic or analyst starts with a reagan did it you may want to challenge it Otherwise, people may actually come to the incorrect conclusion about differences or lack of differences in the policy orientation of Democrats and Republicans. And uh, what he points out is uh, he actually sent me a news article from February 12th, 1981 in The New York Times, which is about a proposal that was in front of the FCC or going to be in front of the FCC by Charles D. Ferris, who was the chairman then. Under the under the Carter FCC, so notice in January 11th, 1981 is just uh, maybe 20 days before the inauguration of Ronald Reagan as president, and uh, he wanted to take up a controversial issue to deregulate uh, radio ownership. Uh, the proposals included eliminating program log requirements. Dropping limitations on the number of hourly commercials, eliminating requirements to find out a community's programming needs, and most controversial, ending requirements that stations produce a certain amount of non-entertainment programming such as news. By the way, all those would eventually be implemented.
0: Um, so there was momentum yeah. prior prior to the Reagan Era.
1: Yes, and although Senator uh, Bob Packwood, Republican of Oregon, urged the FCC to hold off on these new policies until the Reagan administration uh, was going to come in, naming its own chairman, uh, who would go on, who would be Mark Fowler. Um, and I think that's an, I think that's a, a, an interesting point just to, to take up here, uh, because as well, the 1996 Telecommunications Act was a bipartisan bill; it was signed by a Democratic president, uh, Bill Clinton. So. Uh, I think it is. It's a shortcut to sort of put this on Reagan era, and and in some ways, I think when you speak of Reagan era, myself and, and a lot of a lot of folks who who were in policy analysis, um, we're looking at a time rather than a person, right? So, the, and it is absolutely certain that the, sort of these deregulatory deregula- impulses that we sort of associate with Ronald Reagan were already working in the background uh, across many different uh, areas of policy, including communications policy and telecommunications policy. And uh, what uh, Stephen Jones did was bring up a very specific instance in which we can pin it on uh, President Carter's uh, FCC chairman. Uh, sort of it's interesting with 2000. 2000- and sixteen eyes. These proposals seem sort of lame. Like this, not the same as taking away your ownership cap, like right. happened in nineteen ninety six. Fifteen years later, um, and yet you, it's it's a beginning of what one might call a slippery slope. Right. The
0: erosion of this um, public service model, for, right. for broadcast. That's the
1: very specific. That's the very specific erosion. That's right. Where uh, sort of one by one. Uh, putting chinks in that armor and taking yeah. away any actual uh, obligation with teeth that a broadcaster should actually have to do something specific for the public um, in exchange for the free spectrum. Yeah, that, thanks that, that so much uh,
0: to that listener for pointing out that, that idea and we really appreciate it and uh, I'm, ready, I'm ready to keep digging into this past i'm always willing
1: <laughs> yes i mean that's something we uh we love to do and i think it's important it helps to kind of uh really not only just frame but add a narrative and so that we can understand how these things happen over time uh and so thanks to stephen uh, jones for saying that along if you have any comments about about the 1996 telecommunications act or any aspect of of what we talk about here, about radio, about podcasting, about communication, please send them to us podcast at radiosurvivor.com. But I think, you know, when I in terms of making that big story, right, it helps us to understand and begin to make sense of what's going now, of potential futures or potential corrections to the past. Could we put the deregulation genie back in the lamp? Or is there a way to understand the current doldrums? of the commercial radio industry, the enormous debt that Clear Channel, now iHeartMedia has, or the extent to which Cumulus, number two commercial broadcaster in the U.S., has is seeing its stock hover right. under a dollar, can we understand that perhaps that these are unintended outcomes of what was expected or assumed to be pro-industry, pro-capitalist pro-competition policies that ended up having in fact the exact opposite effect
0: i think the one of the arguments we've been making uh when we cover this story um multiple times is that radio in and of itself was not a weak link in the media landscape and just because it was a hundred years old doesn't mean that um its day has come and it was it should pass quietly into the night. And one of the arguments that radio is obsolete is um, just how uh, crummy it is. But what if what if that was uh, what if that was an unintended qua- like what if the quality of the product and the medium was not necessarily uh, organic? It didn't it didn't just grow uh, from from scratch. Right. It, it
1: requires very specific decision making. And what I think. In a, something like the 1996 Telecommunications Act shows is – and I think this is sort of uh, kind of the point that, that – that it's, it's actually a parallel point to the one that Matthew made on our last episode, number 35, Matthew Lassar. Um, he said that it was – it showed this turning point in which radio stopped being concerned with audiences or creating audiences because audiences are created. They don't just preexist. You create them. And, I, and, and, and furthermore, That's I was That's an s-
0: interesting philosophical – Indeed, uh, you know, that doesn't seem right when you first say it. Of course, there are humans. Yeah, there. But but spontaneous be, generation of audience. But audience is when people come together around yeah, something. Of right. Uh,
1: you can't have a movie theater audience without first having a movie theater and a movie for them to see. And the, the, the audience that shows up to see the new Star Wars is different than than the ones uh, than, than the folks who show up uh, to see the new Fast and Furious, even if they're overlapping. Uh, they are not. The same audience. So, so if,
0: if if corporate radio gives up on the idea of of bringing audiences together around its product, then that that idea, those audiences, just sort of yeah. I mean, fizzle. I think it's,
1: it, and I don't think it's, I don't think Matthew's point so much is that they gave up, but that it quit being uh, particularly important. Hmm we can see that coming through in the individuation of of things like like Pandora right. which is a station specifically tailored to you not in the same way as listening so, uh, to KEXP is to a lot of of yous which is another as we say in New Jersey chicken
0: chicken and egg question Right. is that do 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 people want this individual uh one radio station one person uh is that what they really want or is it because um what was mainstream radio gave up on trying to build bigger groups of people together well, who liked that, the same yeah, stuff.
1: And I don't think it's that they gave up on it is that that, that became subsidiary to other concerns.
0: Mm, right. Right. I keep liking the
1: blackest and the whites. Yeah. And, and I and I think it very rarely is so. Yeah, of course, because I think it's still true that there are, you know, within all of the major radio companies, there are people who, Care about audience. Care about listeners. Care about artists.
0: They exist, and right. they're still working. But if the if the business model that began, yeah, uh, you know, that began b- before the 1996 Telecommunication Act, but was definitely strengthened. This uh, this um, uh,
1: well, I think of it as the real estate model. Okay, this is the model, and I, and I was going to follow up with Matthew I think back, back when we had that conversation. Uh-huh. Um, and by the real estate mo- uh, real estate um, example is. So let's say that I am a developer of malls. Okay, I develop strip malls and covered malls. And in any given store, right, it could be a sunglass hut. It could be a clothing store. It could be a radio shack. It could be uh, any number of different things. You're making a mall in the 80s. Right. Uh, Yes. Because that's when I went to malls. That's when you went to malls. Uh, I'm agnostic (laughs) – To some extent, about the store. Now, I kind of care whether or not, um, you know, one particular store in Abercrombie and Fitch might bring in more traffic than another. But to some extent, as long as they can pay the rent I charge, I also don't care. And what the way to make money at building malls is to build a lot of them. You make more money by owning more malls. The more storefronts you have to rent out, the more money you make. It's it, it's a you know okay. and it's and, so, and it's not entirely linear, but that's
0: the case. So storefronts are uh, are radio stations. Are radio stations? Where's the commercial?
1: Well, so if you're if you are uh, something uh, a company in the model of iHeartMedia, Clear Channel, right? You're ambivalent as to whether it's classic rock, country, classic hip hop, etc. What you care is, well, will it pay the rent?
0: Yeah, if people, if people will uh, buy advertising on pink noise, right. they'll, just, they'll broadcast probably, pink noise.
1: Exactly. And, and so you, what you do is you figure out how that will happen. And it doesn't really matter to some extent what it is. That's why, I mean, you know, to some extent, uh, Clear Channel has owned and still does operate uh, progressive talk stations. Right, left and right.
0: Talk they don't. Stations. They don't operate
1: nearly as many progressive talk stations as conservative talk Maybe stations. Maybe there's just less money in it. Well, I mean, and Maybe. I think I mean, there's an argument to be made around that. Yeah, for, that's, a, for that's all,
0: another for genius. all
1: sorts of reasons. Okay, it, it, not the least of which being that uh, one model has been around for twenty plus years. The right wing talk. So it's model. had a lot more chance to develop, develop its audience, Farm in teams, particular, its hosts, right? yeah. its hosts, etc. Tone. Right, so I think that there's a lot of arguments to be made there, Uh, but you know, uh, radio music formats have come and gone as well, and some stick around, like like classic rock, Um, and others like beautiful music uh, tend to fade. We so called easy listening
0: tend to have faded away. There's no more easy listening. This is how ignorant I am of the landscape. Good luck finding
1: one. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm saying very few exist. Sure. And and that's the model now. So instead of being, well, I operate two or three stations that are closely associated with my local community, with local people on air, often playing local music when we decide that it's a good idea. Uh, Instead, it's, well, okay, well, we've got, uh, you know, three empty storefronts in Cleveland, five empty storefronts in Indianapolis, uh, four empty storefronts in Houston, three in Los Angeles. How are we going to fill them up? And, of course, you know – when you go to a mall, it's not typical that you find lots of locally owned stores or locally right. What you find are chains, right? Subways. You find Subways, Orange Julius, or Auntie Anne's. Or again, I'm in an idiot mall here, so it's an Orange <laughs> Julius. Uh, you right because it's easy to replicate those. They're made to replicate, right? You find you find a J.C. Penny or a Macy's. You're less, much less likely to find some local store any longer. Um, and that's the same model already. Much easier to replicate the classic rock model that, that you have in Indianapolis, move that to Columbus and move that to Lexington than it is to develop this sort of homegrown thing in each of these stations, uh, especially if you want to keep up the sort of kind of uh, monopoly profits or oligopoly profits that come from these models. Um, I think that's what we've seen. This is what we've seen in, in that rush since 1996. It was already happening, All right. I right. mean, it's not as if th- that it just all of a sudden happened in 96. All of these things were in the works. Um, and, and the interesting thing, of course, is that we set audience expectations as a result, right? So if you go to a new town, if you move or you're traveling, people kind of expect, where's, where's the classic rock station? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, where's where's the local news? Where's station. the uh, lo- where's the local news station? Or at least the the local news talk, which is often code for Limbaugh and Hannity and um, Or, you know, where is the, uh, you know, where is the, uh, you know, hot adult contemporary? Where's the urban, hot urban? Because even that's kind of a format that now is kind of spread nationwide. It's not just in in major metroplexes. Um, You know, you look for that particular station because you expect it'll be there. And like a franchise, like going to Taco Bell or McDonald's, I mean, uh, from a listener's perspective, sure, there's some security there. It's nice to be able to move around the country and to find a station that plays the music you like. But, of course, what we find is after a while. A lot of people get tired of Taco Bell and they'd like to know what a burrito from San Francisco tastes like or they get tired of McDonald's and they want to know what like a local hamburger. What's the local take on a hamburger? What, you know, even if it's a local chain, how's it in and out different? And I think the same thing goes to radio. So, right. All of these things have been in the works. And these are the things that have happened. Yeah. Right. And so at this moment then can we put the genie back
0: in a bottle, right? You mean like regrow local radio? For instance, yes. And the big question for me is um and and uh and pay people to work there. Right. And 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 I do
1: want to take kind on of, so you've said this a few times and I agree with you. But the thing I want to point out is that uh radio jobs by and large were crap jobs. <laughs> they were very – OK. So when I – I was a radio student. So I took radio classes, radio mm-hmm. production classes in 1992. So at a time in which radio was not thought of as the most robust sector, but most local radio stations still had live people on air for – automation was still a new thing. Um, and uh, my radio professor said to us – he was also the advisor to the college radio station. He said, so – um, You know, I want you to go past the parking lot of this local station, WPST. And look at the cars. Look at the cars in the lot. Do you see the Cadillacs? Those aren't DJs. Those are sales staff. The DJs have the beater Toyotas. And, you know, if you see a Plymouth Duster, <laughs> you know, or a rusty El Camino, that's a DJ. And it, and it was true in 1992. It was true in 1982. DJs were making minimum wage. Yeah, now that's a job. I I'm don't. I'm, I don't wish to. Uh, you know, to take that away. But if they made more than minimum wage for their time, it was often through cutting commercials, for which they usually got paid hmm. separately, for doing personal appearances. So like, hey, come on down. We're all at Bob's used cars this Saturday afternoon. Get your picture taken or get a free hot dog or something. They would be paid usually more than their typical on-air rate for that, sometimes often just a, a flat rate. But that could be half their week's income from would be doing like one afternoon's personal appearance at a used car lot or Ugh. a
0: dance club or something. Right. So, OK. So, so what am I pining for? I'm pining for like a community radio station with a –
1: You're pining for the BBC. Oh,
0: okay. (laughs) Pure socialism. (laughs) Socialist radio.
1: Well, I mean, when you really think about it, of course, the BBC has its own troubles. Um, I mean, in
0: a way – How local is the BBC?
1: The BBC has local stations, yeah. They they, they tend towards regional rather than than hyper-local. Commercial radio in the UK tends to be the local radio, but it suffers from some of the same problems as the US, but not as many because it's highly regulated. Um, But yeah, I think you're pining away for a past that never quite
0: existed. Sure. I want the the good future.
1: We think about WKRP in Cincinnati, right? And we think, you know, but nobody knows how much Johnny Fever was actually getting paid to be
0: on the AM Rock He wasn't in it for the money. Right. He's in it for the rock.
1: And of course, there are always... Your morning show talent, your, right. your 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 afternoon drive talent, you know, you always had people obviously making very good middle class to upper middle class wages, along with your superstars. Um, you know, th- those people existed. If you were on a major station in New York City, uh, in nineteen ninety two or nineteen eighty two, you probably made sure. a good living. You okay, made a so good middle class living. You were
0: using the metaphor that can we put the genie back in the bottle, right? And I'm and I was wondering. Uh, what does that look like? If you if you could aspire to have a radio landscape that is both realistic and um, worth 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 dreaming about,
1: yeah, what it's, does that it, look like? It's tough, right? And because it's hard to, I mean, you know, it's hard from a a hard reality standpoint to ask iHeart Media to all of a sudden go and hire local staffs when it has billions of dollars in debt right? The money just simply isn't there in a certain way. Uh, now, they're the ones who frittered it away, but they should be held responsible for that. But that's difficult. I
0: think to some extent you look to- I was s- imagining them disappearing.
1: Right. And, and well, I mean, at some point, right, you wonder. Uh, it, in fact, I mean, so iHeartMedia no longer owns as many radio stations as it did in its peak. Some of those stations it, it had to divest of, uh, because it was going to own too many in a particular market or through a variety of other deals, so some of them were uh divested specifically to minority owned uh companies okay. um, and to local companies and and and, and though we, we we sort of harp on commercial radio, I think I always want to be clear that there is there is heterogeneity in that in that bunch. not every station is the same there are other owners who are who do make other decisions more local owners some smaller owners that don't own hundreds and hundreds and thousands of stations but you know own a smaller number of stations that do try to provide local service the problem they they face is that their competition is Cumulus Media and iHeart Media hmm. they're facing that competition right you know and 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 this is a problem i think that comes from you know that it is part of our economy in general. That is not specific to radio. Uh, it's in the same thing is happening to newspapers. Not because newspapers are dying, but because like it happened with Clear Channel, those companies decided that they should become more profitable than they had been, and one easy way to jack up those profits was to combine operations, buy a lot of different papers, often television stations as well. Um and reduce staffs yeah like this is this is an impulse that's been happening now for twenty some years, again, not because the these media are dying on their own, but because they have been pushed to the brink and then socked with unexpected challengers the internet, satellite radio, podcasting uh et cetera, et cetera. I right? have a
0: funny thing to change the topic, yeah, you said satellite radio, and I just saw a tweet like last week, I should credit the Twitter account but i won't at the moment uh the tweet was that satellite radio is just a transitory uh business model be you know waiting in the wings is uh internet radio in your car and then then satellite radio is gone and it's all going to be internet radio from here on out which i thought was very interesting in light of our uh small and medium-sized webcaster apocalypse that took place in 2016 um if, the, if those sorts of stations would have been easier to stream in 2017 uh, if they had still been around. Maybe. <laughs> it's a fun. It's a fun. It's game a fun to thought. Think, right. Yeah. I
1: mean, so the thing about satellite radio. Right. The reason why um, people like it. Because it's good.
0: And much of it is good. And, and especially compared to what everything else turned into, which is so uh, predictable.
1: Right. Plus the reason why
0: I listen to community radio, not because of the lack of commercials. It's all that garbage.
1: Well, there's commercials on satellite radio, on the the talk side. Okay. So so commercial-free music, but if you listen to Howard Stern, there's talk. Um, Sure, sure. There's commercials, I mean. Um, But... I've only had a handful of rental cars in my life. <laughs> well, and and that's but so what so I think experience the, satellite the, radio. the value proposition of satellite radio is twofold. So one, it certainly, especially at launch, which now goes back about fifteen years,
0: yeah, it's getting old.
1: It advertised itself as this as a tremendous alternative to the already homogenizing and highly homogenized uh, radio uh, spectrum, right? To broadcast radio, and that it would offer way more programming because there is way more channels. And et cetera, much more specific musical tastes yes, right, to be a uh, – and yeah, and along with talk programming et cetera which which it does it delivers on um but secondarily, you can get satellite radio in the middle of the Mojave desert oh yeah right if you if the, if you so wanted to, so it it was offering also a sort of universality of reception, it has its issues like there there are a number of technical issues with with uh Sirius x m uh because you need to have the a view of the sky. So you go through tunnels and such, you'll lose your reception. Also, there are places actually in, in big cities where you lose reception because of the buildings. Mm-hmm. So what most people don't realize is there actually are terrestrial repeaters that are effectively little tiny radio stations in repeating York, that in satellite. In downtown New York. Itself, downtown Chicago, yeah. LA. I wouldn't be surprised if they were in Portland. They'll put them in, in places where there's uh, near highways, uh, where there might otherwise be obstructions to, Tall buildings. to a sky view uh, or natural, uh, oh, you know, could, could, be, could be tunnels, things like that. So anyway, but that, those are the sort of the two value propositions. And if we, if we think of web radio being a challenge to the diversity proposition – it isn't yet a challenge to the reception proposition, right? To the idea that I can be just about anywhere with a view of the sky in North America and listen to Sirius XM satellite radio.
0: Because the web radio is going to require... Um, requires an internet connection. The The cell phone towers. It
1: requires, at this point, it requires something like a cell phone tower. Correct. And, and so that is always going to be the uh, one challenge. The second challenge is that... Internet is still metered, especially mobile internet, right? Um, And that may change. It has changed if you're a T-Mobile customer, although we can argue about the legality of that because they they basically give you free – they don't charge you for the bandwidth for a set of some music and video services. Some of us would claim that that's not that's network not neutral. neutral. Yeah. Yes, uh, and and uh, John Laguerre, the the foul mouth CEO T Mobile, takes to Twitter frequently to tell people that they're idiots, using words that we don't use often on the podcast or at all. Uh, but that there are some of us who definitely think that that is the case. But so there there are certain cases where s- well, at least one carrier is sort of uh, trying to encourage you. But one re- other reason why uh, it's alleged not to be. Uh, neutral is because apparently they they may actually be mod- modifying the bandwidth. Um, but anyway, that that's sort of a tangent. But as long as you're still sort of paying extra, yeah, um, or risk running out of bandwidth uh, for your uh, internet service, even when it's mobile, uh, unlike sort of the virtually all you know, it's it's virtually all you can eat at home because there's still bandwidth caps, right? On your on your Comcast or, or most ISPs, but they tend to be. If you listen to music twenty four
0: seven, you'd never notice that you right. hit that. Yeah,
1: cap. exactly. You probably would never yeah. notice, you but down, you may you have notice You download
0: it. a lot more movies than you even want to watch.
1: Yeah, to get in there. most cases, I think that's true. Yeah, but where, whereas on mobile internet, you probably would hit that hit that cap right. um, and notice it. So, I mean, that's sort of a structural limitation to internet radio that goes above and beyond the current problems of the small and medium sized webcasters. Um, so it, it may be that, that that Sirius XM has a certain lease on life, uh, but I don't think – I think it's a fairly long lease in part because uh, you know, to some extent when someone – if somebody has the service and mm-hmm. they're happy with it, you know, right now, part of at least what they're going to be happy with is the convenience. They have the little radio in their car or maybe they have the little radio in their house. They know what channels they like. They know how to get it you know, what's their incentive to change? Sure, you could say there's more diversity on online, et cetera, but whether or not it's actually diversity they want, if they're getting what it is they like, it's sort of like cable television. We're moving into the so-called over-the-top world, right? Where you're gonna be getting your HBO through the HBO app and your CBS through the CBS app. But by and large, most people still subscribe to cable. They still subscribe to the sort of, you know, everything they can get because it works. They know how it works. They know the channels they like. Right, they do trade a certain degree of convenience for their for their paycheck, and I mm-hmm. think that probably Sirius XM will continue to be able to exist. Um, it's sad that that it's now a monopoly because you know there were it was Sirius and XM a duopoly. That's- it was a duopoly. Um, the same as um, satellite television is a duopoly. Uh, it was nice when there was some degree of competition, uh, and that and the system was, of course, created with the sense of competition uh but nevertheless uh I think it's probably not going to go away anytime soon um and and also it should be noted that you can be a serious XM Internet subscriber. So if you subscribe to the satellite radio you pay a little extra fee and then you can get all the same channels online or you can choose to simply subscribe to the online channels. So let's say you're a Howard Stern fan Maybe you don't have a car, you don't have a commute, you do all your listening at home. Uh you could just subscribe to uh SiriusXM internet and listen there. So they're they're prepared for that inevitable shift.
0: It was interesting to think about web radio being in a car and how that would really change everything. Have you tried to do it? In my life, no. Yeah, I have. I mean oh, yeah. just with my smartphone. Oh, right, right. Um I mean, right, they're moving towards like Chevy is putting a a hotspot in the car. I was in a rental car this summer uh, on a road trip with my father and actually uh, for the first time was able to stream Bluetooth from my phone to the radio. And we had a huge and very enjoyable podcast party. So I wasn't streaming, but I was uh, – we listened to everything off of my phone for that uh, entire road trip out to the Oregon coast. Um, your battery probably lasted longer. Uh,
1: because I, what I've noticed, certainly if you're trying to stream yeah, uh, right. with your smartphone, uh, with an active, uh, mobile data connection, it, you lose battery pretty quickly. But I was, it was really real fun to,
0: to, 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 to binge on every podcast, uh, for, for all of those hours in the car. Um, really it changed my, my outlook on, on radio. That is possible that soon I would select it all from my palm. So what do you all
1: think? We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to get listener comments. We don't get enough of them, quite frankly. And we love to share what you think on the show. Yeah, we're asking
0: people to work for free. That's why. <laughs> well, sit yeah. down and write your ideas down.
1: Or talk or, or to talk your voice in, memo, or just but, but tweet us. We
0: all know that talking your ideas out loud in an intelligent manner is work. It could be fun.
1: Yeah, well, give us you know, give us just a rant. Then. Yeah, Send do, do us. some
0: free work for us because we really care about your ideas.
1: Well, and we'd like to share it. We'd like this not just to be a platform, but to be more of a discussion. To the yeah, best of our I moment. couldn't
0: help myself though. That's. That's probably why people are sitting on their hands. Because who's? Because we're not. We we should pay them <laughs> well, a, a living have wage. To con- yes.
1: Well, it we may have something to contribute to our discussion. We're not currently. We're not currently getting paid a, a living wage. Yeah, that was also
0: the for wink. What we do the
1: wink and uh, the, the nudge. Send us a comment at podcast at radiosurvivor.com. And yeah, we'd love to turn this into a radio show. We'd like to share these discussions uh, with. A broader audience, folks who might not know about the podcast or find it on their own, people listening to community and college stations and non-commercial stations around the country. We'd like to offer it for free, but we need your help to do that. Um, please go to radiosurvivor.com slash support to help make a contribution to make the Radio Survivor radio show a reality.
0: Yeah, we I'm really, really – it's it. it's a dream, but it's a very interesting one to to fantasize about, thinking about what would what would change from this – from this project that we engage in if uh, more radio people all over the country were able to stumble upon it because it was uh, coming at them out of the stations that they already enjoyed listening to. And if they found us by accident, uh, what would happen to our discussions and our conversations? It it would be very exciting. It's something that I really hope we we pull off in the near future. Well, I, I think I mentioned this before. I did a radio show. Right. Uh, For uh, about
1: uh, seven years uh, on a very similar topic. Just
0: before they called it podcasting, you were – you put your radio show on the internet.
1: Yeah. Started it in 2003. It was called Media Geek. And – it covered a lot of the same territory. It tended to be a bit more newsy in style, mm-hmm. mostly because it was a, a was a good portion of the time a solo show doing it myself. So I had interviews and I did news updates, and
0: I, it was sort of uh, 2003 was sort of. I this, keep meaning to go back and listen to those things just so I can uh, prod you with yeah, some of the old stuff.
1: I I should be uploading to the Internet Archive is what I should be doing, mm-hmm. but um, but you know, 2003 was a time at which the. Uh, Media reform movement was getting a head full of steam. Uh, the uh, organization Free Press had recently been formed to help to advocate on behalf of uh, people's communication rights. The uh, the Future Music Coalition had recently also started to come together uh, as well. So
0: this is this era that that John Anderson was recently exactly uh, we were sharing, sharing about. ideas about because it was this this. Uh, yeah, the, the, a bubbling up of the grassroots right. of, of media. Mm-hmm. So
1: I wanted to be – I was active in that. I would go to the uh, National Conference for Media Reform. I think the first one was had in 2003 in Madison. I attended with John mm-hmm. uh, when he was living there. And uh, you know, so I was documenting a lot of that. So it was very policy heavy and sort of understanding these things like network neutrality, which we do talk about
0: here. You, you called it Media Geek.
1: Yeah, and other aspects of that. I also tried to highlight people doing cool grassroots media things. So I I like to talk to people who were who were, uh, in some cases it would be like community internet uh, projects. uh, Very a lot about indie media, the independent media center movement, which was also uh, at a moment of of growth at that time, having uh, sprung forth from the WTO protests in Seattle in 1999. Um, as well as I, try, I covered things like Pirate Radio, Community Radio, et cetera. I started in Champaign-Urbana at a station called WEFT. So it had a, a real local bent as it started. But once I started putting it on the internet
0: – A weft bent.
1: A weft bent. Uh, people. I had a few people approach me and say we'd love to air this on our, our stations. And uh, because I was a slave to the clock, it was a pretty consistent 29-ish minutes every week. Um and so what I did to make that change was one to make sure I posted it every week on time because I was sort of lackadaisical about it because mm-hmm. podcasting wasn't a thing yet.
0: You got it on the radio uh like you meant it, but sometimes yeah. you didn't get it on the internet.
1: Until a couple of weeks later. Of course or, not. Yeah, because and, and, and I would and often it was in real audio, if we can remember that, because it was an easy way to stream. Some when, of us do. When people didn't have broadband access. Um it could be done over a modem or
0: something. I'm closing my eyes now and I am yeah. I'm seeing the, all of those happy, happy hours I spent with my real audio player. Oh, Listening, yeah. listening to things far away, things on a computer, uh, track to, to, to a desk
1: over the edge on KPFA. Yeah. But so I, um, I put this up and a few stations said we'd love to carry it. And so I learned just not to do any station IDs during the show or to make them note where they were so I could pull it out. And then I usually had like a canned out that I would just graft on the MP3 and send it out. And they aired it. And at the end, I was it was on uh, anywhere between 10 and 15 different stations, low power FM's primarily, though a few college stations in Canada also aired it. And yeah, I did get uh, occasional comments. And what it did to me is it is it made me uh, – it didn't make me not focus locally, but it made me try to always – Take that local focus and make it relevant nationally and to some extent internationally. You'd always sort of say why this was important. We're talking about something that happens in Champaign-Urbana, Illinois. Why would it be important to somebody who is in Moscow, Idaho? Mm-hmm. Um, and to do that and, of course, to be a little more national in my outlook. And I, I continued to show until 2009. Um, so it was into, well into the podcasting era. And at that point, I was calling it a podcast. Every week? Every week from you worked 2003 really hard on this to 2009, well, I learned to, you know, what it meant is I ha- often had to make shows ahead of time that would air, and I found friends who would cover for me on the WEFT and then later on at WNUR and play the disc, you know, usually burned CD at the time, uh, and have it available for the Villiers, so yeah. everything could go downloaded it from the, line.
0: the internet, burned onto a CD, played on the radio.
1: And I burned out. Uh, Because it's a pretty compact twenty nine minutes. Yeah, Um, it's a lot of work, and to some extent, you know, the clock is relentless. Meaning, when the next person is ready for their show, you leave the studio, whether there's something left to be said or not. Um, It also means that you that if your show is set to start at five thirty one. You start at five thirty one p.m. You, did you have to did be you do there. it live. I did it live. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it was really the only way it could work with my life. Yeah, right. That of it was to sit down so I could pre-record interviews much of the time, but then I presented the rest of it live. Usually a, head, a headline segment and an interview. If I didn't have an interview, sometimes I could. I often. Uh, Weedled John Anderson right. <laughs> Coming out to be a guest He lived in Champaign-Urbana For some of that time While he was getting his PhD So he was a pretty willing guest uh, Much of the time And sometimes uh, I didn't prefer these shows I would just talk for half an hour I'd find a few topics to go over And riff on them And
0: leave it at that Have listeners figured out That that's what's happening today <laughs> Don't look at the man behind yeah. the, the, behind the Today's curtain. Today is one of those days Paul and I uh, generally uh, would pref- – not would prefer. Our goal is to always have a great interview, a feature interview. And today it's uh, – we're talking to each other. And, and Jennifer's on and
1: the right. road. And, That's right. And, and, and Jennifer and able Matthew to, are also able to attend. So, but I think this is fine because I do think it's a way for us to kind of chew over and digest a lot of the uh, things going on to uh, take a lot of these uh, – Sort of strings, yeah, these I threads certainly appreciate and tie it. them together the last
0: time the last time we uh we really dug in and did this was um our quarterly report, yeah, several months ago,
1: yeah, quite some time ago, uh more than twenty episodes ago, so I think uh it's really not a bad time, but anyway, so I wanted to say is that you know so i 've had that experience, and I saw how it worked, yeah, and, getting your show on the radio, and it seemed as though there was some desire to have that kind of discussion and I, and I, and I think I said in the last show, so i don't want to beat this. Uh, to a pulp is that I think it's good for people who like community college and non-commercial radio to occasionally be helped to understand the uh, I think the policy, the political, economic dynamic, as well as the personal dynamic and the interpersonal dynamic and the labor that helps to make these things go. And that's a little bit of what I hope we do. You know, I mean people, I mean, people love inside Baseball talk about baseball. Right. That's right. I mean, there is hours and hours and hours of sports talk programming. Really?
0: Inside baseball is actually applicable to the topic of baseball. It is. Never occurred to me. Indeed. <laughs> I always thought inside baseball applied to uh, housing policy and uh, land use.
1: But there's all, all these sports talk stations now, several to a market these days where there isn't that much sports actually going on to broadcast it live. So all they're doing is chewing over yeah. what is going on in the NFL, the NBA, sometimes the NHL I suppose, <laughs> the MLS and Major League Baseball, oh you know as well as I guess college sports. Right, and he's just talking it over, and a lot of it gets really inside because yeah. people who really care care about what goes on, and we like to think we hope that 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 people who really care about radio and podcasting, and sort of sonic arts and audio programming, the audio medium, also. Kind of like to dig in and get to know a little bit more and not and and not merely – well, I don't want to say merely be consumers because there's nothing wrong with that. But want to kind of – some people would like to elaborate on that experience, I suppose. So I hope that's something you want to help us with. Once again, it's a really long pitch. It's like we're in pledge drive. I know, but it I was – I apologize.
0: I turned the pitch into a into a topic Into a topic. Because I wanted to hear about Media Geek.
1: Well, we want to talk about podcasting a little bit too because I think podcasting has gotten kind of short shrift Wait, but you didn't so end far the pitch. this year. I didn't – oh, Radiosurvivor.com slash support to help us turn this into a radio show where we could have dozens of affiliates nationwide, people better understanding the the media environment that creates uh, the programming they like or maybe doesn't create the programming they like and can help them better understand how they could be a part of the process that creates better radio for real
0: communities. There you go. Patreon. Radiosurvivor.org support,
1: and I didn't even give you or me any more coffee before this started.
0: <laughs> so we were gonna—you—you you had already—you uh, were already halfway out of the gate with your with your elegant transition before I. Well, you were yeah, you.
1: Uh, you were the one who, who actually brought up the brought up the topic. We should talk a little bit about podcasting. This I want to
0: talk about podcasting, but what? There's so much to talk about. Um. So there's yeah, there's so many things on my mind. One, uh, I I've I just realized this week that I miss the days, not that I ever had the opportunity to really get my feet wet or to get my elbows dirty, one of those metaphors. I really miss the idea that podcasts were something that you could just toss out there one at a time, week after week, and not worry about um, having a perfect launch. And now the professionalization of podcasting, which is wonderful, makes me uh, nervous about putting episode one. On the internet. So isn't that the difference between Black
1: Flag and Led Zeppelin? <laughs> I mean – Say more. Well, I mean – so it is the case I think, right, that um, the professionalization of podcasting because it is now the a business. The Gimlet media of you – know, Yeah. The, and mid-roll media and Earwolf. I mean let, let, yes. let's take credit for what for –
0: where credit I'll, is due on both sides of that. I'll I'm going to let you finish your statement yeah. and then I'll argue against uh, okay. uh, Earwolf being included because okay. of the nature of those shows.
1: It is it is different. I, I, I would love to have that conversation yeah, a little but, bit. <laughs> but yeah, but I think that um, – right. So the fact that this is now a, a business, right, as opposed to kind of a hobby, an interesting diversion. Right. I think that it puts – some people feel that pressure and I understand that. Um, at the same time … I think that part of the great spirit of podcasting is a little bit punk rock, even mm-hmm. if not all podcasting is punk rock. Some of it's twee indie rock.
0: <laughs> Some of it is
1: classic rock.
0: So what's the black flag and who's the Led Zeppelin?
1: Well, so I think the punk rock ethos is a bit more let's go out there and try things. And let's not be too worried about that first, second, or third episode so much as we get something out there. Yeah. Because podcasting is a little bit about the new. What is your newest episode? It's true people do go back. when they, I've done it and I know people who do. You find a podcast you like and you look at the back catalog and you're like, oh, wow, I really want to hear that
0: interview or that seems really sure. cool. But if you if you look at podcasts, if you look at the app on the iPhone, mm-hmm. it is definitely prioritizing yeah, the new this week,
1: absolutely, episode. right. So I think you know to some extent there is an opportunity to grow. What I think, where people get a little stopped in their tracks is they is they start thinking they start thinking about the monetization. They start thinking about like, well, if I'm going to make money at this dot dot dot, and they look at who they perceive to be professional. Successful podcasters, whether it is something in the public radio mold or the Gimlet Media mold, yeah. or it's something in sort of the there's an entrepreneurial side. Uh, there are these shows like the Entrepreneur on Fire, uh, you know, that do these shows or, or smart smart passive income that are successful as well and 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 make money. Though they often make money from a whole variety of activities of which the podcast is one or maybe the central activity, but there's a lot of other things they often make money at. And they look at that and they compare themselves and they say, well, I don't know if I can do that. And that's where it gets stopped. And, and the thing I'd I'd say to somebody is, well, all those podcasts I just mentioned, right? Well, maybe let's, let's put aside Gimlet sort of a special case, Mm -hmm. but like those entrepreneur podcasts and including a lot of other very successful podcasts, whether it's like welcome to night Vale or a lot of others, uh, they weren't making any money when they started. They were – they started out because someone had an idea they wanted to share and because they did so in a compelling and I think very – for lack of a better way of putting it, authentic way, a way that felt like it was personal and someone was being truthful about themselves and what they know, they built an audience – And after a time, after building an audience of a certain size, there's the opportunity to sell advertisements or an opportunity to do live shows or an opportunity in some cases to sell subscriptions or do other things. But I think that's how it started. And holding your first episode to that standard is uh, probably self-defeating
0: for most people who are – Unless you're Alex Blumberg.
1: Well – Unless you're an independent, right? I mean, so Alex Bloomberg started a company. He came from This American Life. So he didn't start with Gimlet. He started as a producer on This American Life all those years ago. And then the Planet Money work was. Right. Exactly. So, I mean, and he's brilliant. He's absolutely brilliant. But the first episode of Startup is not his first podcast. Right. It's his in you know, 100th, 200th, 300th podcast he's ever worked on. So instead, I think, you you know, it's better to look at somebody for whom it was their first and then has built up. Go back and listen to that first episode of WTF with Mark Marin. or go back and listen to a first episode of any number of other you have shows. to get
0: past the paywall now, Paul. <laughs> can't blame a guy who has to make a little bit of money. Yeah, no, I'm I'm definitely fine no. with that. But you can't hear – you can't – yeah, you'll have to pay a little. Of, but
1: go back and pick any number yeah. of, of shows, right? It's sort of like we have – I think it's uh, parallels like television and, and there are uh, many people who love Saturday Night Live. Right, they have these great fond memories of that first cast. We're of back Saturn to like Life. the
0: pizza metaphor,
1: right? To that first uh, of last week. Yeah, so, so, I, I don't know, but uh, to
0: that first season. The first, the first bite of pizza is the pizza you think is great. And but if when, you watch when you were when you were a, a a sophomore in high school, that's the that's the cast of Saturday Night Live. Or Life some people who came to it good. later, and
1: then and and but you freshman know, I in think, college. <laughs> I think people come to it having watched highlight reels of that first cast of Saturday Night Live. Right. What oh, they didn't yeah. watch was a full 90 minutes where there were a couple and – and Saturday Night Live is still sort of that way. There's a few really funny sketches, a few kind of – well, there are amusing sketches and a couple sketches that just kind of land with a thud. Well, kind of the hit-to-thud ratio in that first season of Saturday Night Live was much higher on thud than it was on hysterical. But it was new.
0: Yeah.
1: They were all new to, they were all mostly new to the medium, except for Lauren Michaels, who was the, uh, the producer, right? So you had, I think, you got to remember that, of course, a show in its 100th or 200th episode has found, has probably found its groove, found the level of polish that it needs to have, right. and figured out its audience. So I'm trying to like to figure I... this out in advance yeah. is to some extent, I mean, it, it, it may be, it may be counterproductive, not merely because it stops you from doing it, but your guesses may be wrong. <laughs> I
0: It's like, it's almost like there needs to be feeds that allow for, uh, episodes to be tossed off every single episode that you create. That's one feed. And then the other feed, uh, that you, that you promote that you really, uh, maybe even invest money in on Facebook, right? Or whatever it else is that you grab but why? Bites. I
1: mean so I mean why so so to me uh, that 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 pursuit spe- speaks of fear, right? Yeah. Right. Like I'm afraid that what I'm making isn't good enough.
0: They will listen and then they, will, they and will skip it.
1: The thing is is that is it's that fear that causes things not to be made in the first place, right? Uh-huh. I mean if we think about like, say Welcome to Night Vale. I mean there's been audio drama has existed Narrative audio has existed for a long time, although it's mostly receded in in the last 25 years. This idea that this sort of weirdly narrated pseudo radio program about uh, supernatural events happening in in this strange town, the idea that that would suddenly become a hit is not anything anyone would have predicted. And if those guys had sat down and said, well, I mean, this is weird. I don't know if I want anyone to listen to it. Well, if you say that, then no one's going to because we don't know which experiments are going to work. I mean, that's the great thing about community and college radio. It goes out over the air. Right. Right. There's no stopping it from happening. It goes out. Now, sometimes those of us, you know, sometimes those of us who might have some anxiety about it, we're bolstered a bit by the fact that it's kind of ephemeral. Unless somebody is sitting by with a recorder um, and we don't record it, it happened. The people who heard it heard it and maybe nobody heard it. Um, it can't kind of hang around as it get, easily. It can get
0: polished up in the memories.
1: It can get polished up in the memories. But yeah, but I think that, you know, to, I think it's important to embrace that in the same way that, you know, a band, sure, may get polished and may, you know, get to be, uh, you know, like more like Rush uh, than, they, than they are like the Minutemen. But at the same time, you know, bands usually get good because they play a lot you have to have your first show you have to have your 15th show
0: so the the second time you made a metaphor that reminded me of the soundbite of Jesse Thorne on a recent on the 99th episode of The Wolf Den yes. which i wanted i got your permission prior to broadcast today that we're going to talk about a, a podcast episode that you produced that uh, i thought was very special i think that radio survivor listeners uh, just in case there are some who aren't also wolf den listeners they should be aware of the work that you put into that because i really appreciated uh listening to that show so you're you're the producer of the wolf den on yeah. Earwolf's on Network. earwolf yeah and the wolf den is earwolf's soul uh soul non-comedy i well it used to be that way it now used it's to be. changed because it's been around for so long yeah i
1: mean it's it's a show that goes back to 2010 um Which created back, by back
0: when there was only eight shows on the earwolf network or, or even fewer like maybe yeah. then yeah i don't even i wish i knew better
1: um i cr- was a listener created in 2010 by the founder the co-founder of earwolf jeff ulrich i who, remember
0: thinking it was the weirdest dumbest thing how dare he that's what i thought the first day i know and knew it existed What that back it's in about the business of podcasting yeah, what a, what an amazing thing to do to to just talk about the one thing you want to talk about but that's up. what podcasting is. I know, but it just it went it it took it took a few weeks. to And sink I didn't in.
1: learn about it until several years later. Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it. And when I came on board at Midroll,
0: I was a radio person when I found out about it. I thought it was, I thought it was weird.
1: Yeah, well, so it's about the business, but in the early days, often talking about the struggles of starting a podcast network. Right, they bootstrapped, which means that there was no venture capital funding. It was all what Jeff and Scott Ackerman were willing to put into the business with the hope that it would turn into something. Um, and then, you know, obviously the labor often donated, uh, and you know, but although I know Jeff went to great lengths to try and compensate people the best that he could in those early years, uh, to create this podcast network, which, which exists and has turned into mid media, um, where I work. And I began working there, uh, two years ago in, uh, February of 2014. And, uh, I took over uh, producer duties for this show and it's something which I uh, encouraged Jeff to do more because what he wanted to make sure we did at mid-roll was to spread good information about podcasting and the business of podcasting and also to be, kind, be leaders of sorts in, in terms of also kind of being ethical mm. and open. In the way that we uh, did our business. It's like
0: a, I've, it's so funny. I'm thinking now it's like the shadow of Radio Survivor or or maybe Radio Survivor is the shadow of since I don't know. Since I'm, I don't so want one the above the other. So
1: I'm not the host. Right. So I'm an actual, you know, in that sense, producer. Uh, the host is now the current CEO of Midroll Media. His name is Adam Sachs. Um, and he took over the show in uh, later on in 2014 uh, when Jeff stepped aside from the CEO position at that time and Adam stepped in. So the baton was
0: passed. Yeah, and you book the guests.
1: I book the guests. I do research. I write some questions. And, and then this last episode, number 99, before we go to number 100, uh, was a retrospective. So I I said it's basically six years of, ear, of the history of Earwolf and podcasting in less than an hour. So It was I went, a, it I was went a through. great episode. Thank you. I yeah. really appreciate it. Pick some clips of interviews. And the interesting thing is there are these ideas that came up in like 2011 where someone like Jesse Thorne, who founded the Maximum Fun Network, has the show Bullseye used to be the Sound of Young America. He had been on. He was a friend, He's a friend of Jeff's. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's based in LA. And, and sort of the rise of Maximum Fun was sort of coincident with the rise of Earwolf. Right. And we, I had a little clip of him talking about how sort of professionalization – was not only sort of inevitable, but necessary.
0: Yeah, I li- I really liked his point that even if people who are making your podcasts are giving it away for free and never ask you for a dollar for that work, um, you should know that the dirty little secret is that they got good at what they're doing because somebody paid them at one point. Because so- they were
1: able to do it Without doing something else. Yeah.
0: So the Sklar brothers was his example. Yeah. That here are, here are two people who are making you a special uh, free thing that's fun, fun, fun. But the, one of the reasons why you're entertained by it is because they were road comics right. who, who, who were fed and paid their rent possibly their mortgages from the work that they did telling jokes in front of audiences and getting very good at it. Yeah.
1: Knowing how to keep an audience entertained, keep their attention, and keep it keep it flowing. Even if the podcast was not stand up, all that all that work that they put in is what made them good podcasters. Right.
0: And then I think Jesse was probably also um alluding to his own life as a radio professional yeah. slash uh producer of uh, free content that no one ever paid for ever yeah i don't remember if and it's the, the tension between those two things i
1: don't know if it was in the clip specifically you know, i think he did he talked about how you know he started to sound a young america which was what his show was okay, called yeah. then it wasn't in the clip at, it was uh university of santa cruz or yes i'm sorry uh is it university the of california had santa, santa cruz yeah. UC santa cruz um where he started there at the college station had this time to develop and he spent all this time doing it often but without getting paid. But this is what gave him ultimately the opportunity to do it. And he noted though in that interview, um, which from a long time ago, but um, but you can find it at uh, Earwolf.com, uh, that eventually he, you know, in forming Maximum Fund, was able to bring in enough money to at least pay him <laughs> to produce Bullseye or what is now Bullseye at the time Yeah, to, for that solid – uh our show, I think is what it is. Which is syndicated also as a um which is syndicated as a uh as a radio show uh, to some public radio stations. Well now it's now.
0: national public radio. Yeah now it's a national public He's, radio show. He made the big switch.
1: Well that's really a distribution deal. It's not National Public Radio is not a titular producer. They're just a distributor. But anyway that's inside baseball. Yeah. <laughs> um but you know so uh, yeah, I think, you know, I I really enjoyed doing it. It was hard work to kind of encapsulate six years of the podcast in these different interviews. Um, we talked about Gimlet. Alex Bloomberg was on the show before he launched Gimlet when it was just an idea he had and he was workshopping it. Part of that was workshopping it with Jeff Ulrich on Mike on the show. So I bring yeah. part of that excerpt there. Um, so for people who care about, the history of podcasting in the last six years, I want to say, you know, as its growth really is a business um, and being something which is a sustainable enterprise because it's always part and parcel of that discussion, whether it's a nonprofit business or a for-profit business, making the whole enterprise sustainable. So that it shows you like continue to get made and people don't just burn out because they run out of time and don't have enough money. Um, I, I, I would hope you take a listen to it. We'll put it in the show notes, uh, which is at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Just look for episode number 35 and you'll be able to get a link there. You could go to earwolf.com and then look for the show, the wolf den. I hope you'll take a listen. Episode
0: 99. I think one of the fascinating things about, uh, about that episode, one of the thesis statements, I think that, that you guys were making, um, maybe unintentionally, but maybe intentionally was that, uh, the, the original purpose of the show way back when it was launched was it was just something that this guy – Jeff, right? Mm-hmm. Just something that Jeff wanted to do. He wanted to have these conversations, so he had them. The outcome – Well, after, he wanted to have
1: – yeah, he wanted to have the conversations. And also he was getting so many questions like what's going on sure. that he felt like a podcast was a great way to share that news. But,
0: but then here we are six years later and one of the unexpected outcomes was the show was a very good – Historical document of podcasting history, and I love the idea that a podcast um, can could surprise you about what it what it really is after you've done it, yeah, ninety nine times, absolutely after ninety nine hours or so or more. And I'm only responsible for being involved with the, with about half, right? But yeah, and
1: Jeff and I talked about that explicitly. When I came on board, because I really that was one of the reasons why I thought he, sh- he So at that point, when I came on board, he was doing it more sporadically because he had so much to do uh-huh. and he didn't have a producer.
0: Because podcasts are real work. Because that's was another thing I think I want to talk about today. Producing
1: it himself, really, aside from a little bit of help, I think with a booker. And so when I came on board, I was like, well, I'll take care of all this stuff so that you can, you know, you'll have to do your homework and I'll help you do that homework and then you can come in and do the show rather than having to do all of it. Um, and because I think that we are documenting something important that is happening and I think we can continue to do that and we can and, – and it's a way of – you know of, I like to think to some extent doing this show like, like Radio Survivor even and talking about radio we want to see in addition to radio we like and talking about the way we want the world to be, not just the way the world is, helps to put these ideas out there. We don't, we can't draw a straight line from us saying it to it happening, but I like to think that we're giving some folks encouragement, and it certainly made me a better producer.
0: It it made it easier for me to have conversations with people about the podcasts they may or may not be launching.
1: It is, I mean, this is so – and that's kind of what I hope and I, I hope – I think it happens with the wealth, and I hope it's happening with Radio with Radio Survivor.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Radio Survivor. If you have questions or comments for us, we want to hear from you. Podcast at radiosurvivor.com is our email. You can check out the forums on the Radio Survivor website because that's where the ongoing discussions are taking place and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, and also please rate – And review our podcast on the iTunes platform, where so many people uh, tend to stumble upon their podcasts. And so we could use your help. Say something constructive. uh, We'll read that criticism and uh, give us some stars.
1: Absolutely. We really appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And thank you, Eric, for uh, doing another episode with me.
0: Yeah. And we should mention Matthew Lassar and uh, Jennifer Waits will be back on future episodes of the show. Uh, And you can still read their work at the radio survivor website and uh, thank you so much uh, to them for their hard work.